It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. An honor to introduce to you a relatively new member of the KFAX programming family. And uh, we certainly want to invite you to tune in weekday afternoons at 2.30 p.m. here on KFAX for, albeit a new radio program, though he's been on television for many, many years, the broadcast Discovering the Jewish Jesus. And joining us now is its host and speaker, Messianic Rabbi Kurt Schneider. Rabbi Schneider, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. God bless you, friend. Thank you for having me on, Craig. I really appreciate it. You have got a fascinating background, and by way of introduction for uh, many of our listeners that uh, are are new to your program, and we certainly want to encourage them to uh, discover more about your radio and television ministry. But let's start with a quick little primer on some of your background. Understand that you're originally from Cleveland, Ohio. You took your bar mitzvah in a conservative temple. And then spent, I guess, a good portion of your high school and collegiate days in wrestling. That is true. That was my identity. I had a one-track mind, completely focused on it. And my goal from seventh grade up through the time that I graduated high school, Craig, was to be state champ in Ohio at the weight class that I wrestled in, which at uh, my senior year was 119. I used to uh, listen to my Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album before going to sleep at night, laying in my bed envisioning with my hand raised in St. John's Arena at Ohio State University as state champ, and chills would go through my body. And I got to a place where I thought there wasn't anybody that I couldn't beat. And as long as I stayed in that world, I felt great. But when I walked off the wrestling mat after wrestling my last match in high school, recognizing I was going into a world that was much bigger than 119 pounders, uh, 119 uh, pounders, it was like the world was pulled out from underneath my feet. And everything just came collapsing down. I didn't know who I was anymore, didn't have direction anymore, went from feeling like I was in control to feeling completely not in control, vulnerable and afraid. And I struggled like that for two years. But in 1978, at the age of 20 years old, having no understanding, I actually, I never even thought about Jesus. Uh, He was as far away to me as the man on the moon. But in 1970, I went to sleep on a hot August night Again, never had read the New Testament. No one had ever witnessed to me. And in the middle of the night, Craig, I was awoke from my sleep into a conscious state of awareness. I was suddenly aware that I wasn't sleeping, a very high sense of something happening. And then Jesus appeared to me in a vision of the night. It was in color. He was on the cross. There were some people in the distance looking at him as he was being crucified. And then a ray of red light from straight through the sky, from straight even above the blue, came down on his head. And when I saw, Craig, the ray of red light come through the sky onto Jesus' head, I knew the light was coming from God. I understood the symbolism of it. And he was telling me that Jesus was the way to him. I knew as an American that the person on the cross was Jesus. That's, that's all I knew. 
But that was the beginning of my faith journey over 40 years ago. So as a young man, I'm curious, Rabbi, had, had you at all been actively involved in, in your Jewish faith? Was that something more obligatory from the standpoint of, well, this is what we do, this is what mom and dad want, so you're going to go through a, kind of the routine, so to speak. But I, I'm curious, had, had that been a day-to-day component in your life at all prior to that supernatural encounter in 1978? Well, my family was very much culturally Jewish, but in terms of uh, viewing their Jewishness as a, uh, a sense of being connected to God as the chosen people, that wasn't there, which was the case of, you know, all the people that I knew. Most Jewish people, you probably know, are, are very secular. There is obviously, there's an Orthodox community and so on, but the vast majority of Jews, even in Israel, are secular. So we were very, very culturally Jewish. And I always had a very strong belief in God, but I didn't relate to God uh, through some type of rabbinic uh, system. I, you know, I was bar mitzvah and I went through all the training for that. But in terms of relating to God through the rabbinic Judaism, that was not part of my universe. Now, I understand you had had a little bit of a, a, a brush, at least, we'll call it, with supernatural. Um, there was a time following your um, your tenure at the University of Tampa that uh, kind of looking to find where your next niche was going to be, you became an encyclopedia salesman, which I guess today is a bit of an endangered species with the Internet. But you had gone to a basically a motivation uh, sales meeting, and I understand at that meeting uh, met another salesperson who had been engaged to some degree with Eastern mysticism, and, and in particular, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, had introduced you to a yogi that claimed to have supernatural powers, and it is not long after that that God, in fact, revealed himself to you in a very supernatural way. Fascinating. Well, yeah, you've done your homework, my friend. Did you read my book, Call to Breakthrough? You no, know, I haven't yet, but that's going to be on my agenda for sure, because I find your 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 story so captivating. You know, that, that notion, it's kind of a Romans one thing, that notion that God will reveal himself to each and every one of us. And, and even the notion of unreached people groups, you know, the Lord cares about us so much that God is going to find a way to be able to communicate with us. And if he has to do it supernaturally and directly, he will do it. And that certainly is what happened in your case. Very, very true. And Jesus has a chosen people. You know, he said he would build his church and, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so when we preach the gospel, this is a, just taking a side step here for a moment, but when we preach the gospel, we don't have the notion that everybody that we preach to will come to faith in Yeshua. But what we have faith in is that God will re- reveal himself to his elect. Even Jesus, in John 17, he prayed, Father, I pray not for the world, but for those who now has given me. And so he revealed himself to me, Craig, in a way that he didn't reveal himself to any of the other Jewish guys that I grew up with. And I think, you know, I was chosen before the foundation of the world, as the book of Ephesians says, that all of his children were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's one of my favorite portions in the Word of God, that we were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world and predestined to adoption in his love. So I believe that... um, you know, God, you know, had, has and had a special plan for my life and a special call. And that's why he revealed himself to me so powerfully. Yeshua, certainly during his end of time of ministry here on earth, had warned us that 
we would be persecuted for his namesake. And that certainly has been a big part of your own personal testimony. I understand that your your parents' reaction was uh, startling, to say the least. I mean, after all, here's this nice Jewish boy walking about town telling all the neighbors about Jesus. Their reaction, though, to your discovery of Messiah was pretty profound, um, pretty forceful. Tell us about that. Well, it, it absolutely was. I think there were, first of all, two ingredients that caused them to react uh, so forcefully. Number one, when wrestling ended, I was going through an identity crisis, and they knew that I was struggling. So they didn't know what was going on. That would be the first point that I would make on their behalf. But secondly, I think they were very, very ashamed. I mean, for a Jew to be walking around their Jewish neighborhood, my parents totally felt the shame of that. I mean, the one thing that you cannot do as a Jewish person person is believe in Jesus. If, you, if you're an atheist, you'll still be accepted by the Jewish community. If you practice Buddhism, you'll still be accepted by the Jewish community. But as soon as a Jew names Jesus as their Messiah, bam, you're out. So my parents took uh, to decisive action. They hired the most famous deprogrammer at the time. Uh, many of your people uh, probably know what a deprogrammer is, but some may not. But uh, particularly in the 70s, there was a lot of Jewish people that were getting involved in cults as well as Gentile people, too. It was the age of, you know, time of Eastern religion. And so this guy, Ted Patrick, had a son that he he was able to rescue out of a cult. So he ended up uh, going into business as, as a deprogrammer, and parents would hire this guy. Basically, I was abducted by him and his bodyguards. Uh, they flew him in from California to Cleveland, where we were living. My dad told me we were going to go talk to somebody about buying a restaurant. And when we went to the hotel where we were supposedly going to be conducting a business meeting, I was abducted by uh, Ted Patrick and his bodyguards. They then took me to California, where they uh, took me to the beach in the day, the bars at night, took away my wallet, took away my car keys, had nothing. And they thought that if they could get me away from whoever they thought was programming me, that I'd come back to my senses. But obviously, um, you know, I was marked by the Lord. So that didn't happen. And then when that didn't work, uh, my parents, you know, even took further action. So, yeah, I think uh, it was, you know, my parents were very ashamed and, uh, um, you know, tried to do whatever they could to stop me from following Messiah Yeshua. I'm curious in that moment, and I I find it completely fascinating, you know, that that shows a bit of the short-sightedness understanding of these deprogrammers. Certainly, if you had been engaged in a quote-unquote cult, separating you from the cult leader that could no longer influence you, well, that might make sense. But in this case, a little bit difficult to be separated from the Spirit of God because He's always abiding with us. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious in terms of what was going on in your own heart at that time? You, you have had this supernatural experience. You have begun to study the claims of Messiah. You've, in fact, fully embraced him as now a Messianic Jew, a completed Jew, and your folks are not taking very well to this. And, you know, I, I've got to believe with the best of intentions, um, it created this scenario uh, hoping to draw you out of this cult called Messiah, and yet uh, I'm wondering, in the middle of all of that, what, what was your sense in terms of where where the Lord was? Were, were there moments that you were questioning yourself and saying, God, well, why are you allowing me to experience all of this? 
No, not during that first action that they took. In fact, when I was abducted in the hotel room, um, basically what happened was we walked into the room, the door closed behind me. Uh, Ted Patrick uh, said, to, I was sat on the bed. I knew I was in the room. He said to me, Kurt, we're going to talk about cults. I said, I'm, I'm not in a cult. I said, I just believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He said, well, you've got nothing to worry about then. So I stood up. And I said, well, can I leave? And one of the big bodyguards said, sit down. So I knew I wasn't going anywhere. Wow. So I said, well, you know, can I go to the ba- restroom? You know, and, and that was part of the hotel room. They said, yeah, you can go to the bathroom. So I got on my knees uh, in the bathroom, Craig. And I said, Lord, I don't know where this is going, but I just pray that you'll keep me. But I had no questioning of my faith at all. But it did get difficult uh, in the second action that they took. So that was a more difficult uh, episode. But clearly through all of that, the Lord was strengthening you, and that relationship was deepening. And uh, it just—it's an absolute fascinating story of conversion, and shows that you know when we see the depiction of of Christ leaving the rest of the flock to go find the one sheep that has been, you know, kind of headed off from the rest of the group. That that God is serious about that, in terms of drawing each and every one of us to the foot of the cross. We're visiting today with Rabbi Kurt Schneider. His broadcast, Discovering the Jewish Jesus, maybe you're familiar with the television program, now on radio, weekday afternoons at 2.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. More information available on the web at discoveringthejewishjesus.com. That's discoveringthejewishjesus.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Rabbi Kurt Schneider joins us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. On this segment of the program, unpacking the amazing story of my special guest in this segment, Rabbi Kurt Schneider, host of Discovering the Jewish Jesus. The broadcast, by the way, comes your way each Monday through Friday at 2.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. So we invite you to uh, tune in and check it out. You can also get more information on the web at discoveringthejewishjesus.com. That's discoveringthejewishjesus.com. Rabbi Schneider, I want to kind of move the story along because there's another topic I want to get to before our time runs out. But it, it sounds like then, following that experience, obviously the Holy Spirit had a strong hold of your heart. You eventually went into Bible college. You studied for the ministry. You went into full-time ministry in a mainline Protestant denomination. And then, after a while, decided to take a sabbatical and went into working as a motivational speaker. But it was during that period of time that the Lord not only called you back to ministry, but eventually called you to the ministry that you're engaged with today that's had a very strong focus on outreach to Jewish people around the globe. Tell us a bit about that. Well, people oftentimes think that my ministry is focused only on Jewish people. Really, my heart, uh, Craig, is just to preach God's Word. Really, discovering the Jewish Jesus helps God's people understand, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, understand how the Old and New Testaments fit together like a hand in a glove. You know, the first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, says, This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very first verse of the New Testament connects Jesus to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So we need that foundation under our faith, under our feet, to fully appreciate who Jesus is and how he fulfills 
everything that's written in the Word of God from the book of Genesis onward. So my mission is to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. And uh, what I really, my goal is, I know that it sounds preposterous, but my goal is I want every man, woman, and child on the earth to have enough information about Jesus through my ministry that they can either accept him or reject him. So I'm a preacher of the Word of God. I'm an evangelist. And uh, I think I have a gift in making things simple so that people can understand. But getting to your point, my friend, um, we have just recently launched in early March an international movement called Taking the Rainbow Back. And what a great day, Craig, to be interviewed by you. And by the way, you're a very fluid interviewer, and I really appreciate it. You're really easy to flow with. But what a day to, to, to be interviewed by you when it's the first day of Gay Pride Month in San Francisco, no less. Yes, this is that's uh, I guess that's true. This is now June 1st. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a bit about this initiative, and you know we we understand certainly the the rich symbolism from from God's promise you know, following the great flood, and of course the beautiful reminder every time we have a rainstorm and the sun begins to come out, um, how many of us have just in absolute awe and wonder seeing the arc of the rainbow, and even sometimes a complete point to point arc in its totality of the rainbow and reminded of that promise of God. Um, That's been co-opted, though, hasn't it? Well, it has, and it's been so hijacked that Christians are even afraid to associate with the rainbow. But the reality is, Revelation 4-3, John on the island of Patmos, sees God on the throne. And John said in Revelation 4-3, there was a rainbow around the throne. And Ezekiel, in Ezekiel one twenty eight. He saw the Son of God glorified. He was in the form of a man, uh, Ezekiel said. He had fire inside him that went upward and downward. And all around him, the prophet said, was the radiance like a rainbow. So the rainbow is a manifestation of God's beauty and glory. And I've had personal experiences and encounters with the Lord where he manifested himself to me in rainbow light. So I've been very connected to the rainbow going back now 40 years. I didn't even associate the rainbow in all those years, you know, until, you know, obviously the last five years particularly. I didn't even really associate the rainbow with the LGBTQ movement. But this movement, this ideology, the same sex uh, uh, blessing that the culture uh, has now and uh, gender dysphoria and uh, uh, transgendering. All this, this is, as you know, this just thing just erupted suddenly. It was in the water for quite a while. It was, it was in the Kool-Aid, so to speak. But it erupted just in the past several years. And something rose up in me, Craig. And I mean, I, I believe it was the fire of the Holy Spirit that rose up in me. I want you to stand up and I want you to speak out against this thing. My mission is to empower God's people to come together in unity, to lift our voices and to take a stand for righteousness. We need to speak up. We need to speak out. We need to drive the forces of darkness away. Not that we can change America, but we can certainly influence the sphere where we're living, whether it's our family or our workplace or wherever that is. We can have an impact. I want to encourage everybody that's listening right now to go to my website, Taking the Rainbow Back. The last word is back. Taking the Rainbow Back. Dot com and join the movement. We've got thousands and thousands of people all over the world that are getting involved in this. It's so important. This is a uh, this is a battleground that the church needs to stand on and fight. 
Boy, so much to unpack, and we certainly appreciate your time today, uh, Pastor Schneider, Rabbi Schneider, and would love to get you back on to go a little bit deeper into this subject matter. Visiting today with... Rabbi Kurt Schneider, again, he is the host of Discovering the Jewish Jesus, the broadcast weekday afternoons at 2.30 p.m. here on KFAX. More information available again on the web at discoveringthejewishjesus.com. That's discoveringthejewishjesus.com. And our thanks to Rabbi Kurt Schneider for being with us. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If I come to your home and ask to borrow your lawnmower, you might agree saying, well, gee, I've got two of them. Why don't you go ahead and take one? We might call that gifting or donating. Conversely, though, if I come to your home, say, in the middle of the night and look in your garage and see your lawnmower and simply take it, that would be called stealing. Using that same paradigm or example, when we talk about medical ethics, let's use an example perhaps where you're sick in a hospital bed. And I, as a physician, determine in my opinion that your life is of no more value than being dead. And I go and help myself to a kidney or liver and more. While that used to be called murder, today it's called presumed consent. It is the topic of our discussion this afternoon as we're joined in studio by Wesley Smith. He's a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute, the author of a number of best-selling books, including Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. He's a very prolific blogger. You can get information, by the way, on his blog, Secondhand Smoke, online. Also get information about his book online at wesleyjsmith.com. And Wes, it's always great to have you with us. Hey, Craig, good to see you again. It's amazing the way times change, that the example of the lawnmower that we can all relate to would go from a donation to stealing, and yet you would think that in the one arena where we need to rely on ethics the most, in the arena of medical care, that we would assume that our life would be safe and protected by a profession whose very goal in the very beginning was to protect and preserve life, not to simply help themselves to it. What's changed? Well, what's going on is that healthcare is under a great deal of pressure to destroy the Hippocratic value system, the idea of the intrinsic dignity of human life. Uh, we do not yet have presumed consent in the United States. They do have it in some other countries, such as Spain. Uh, and it goes something like this, that uh, if you uh, go into a hospital and we'll just say you die, you are presumed to have said you wanted to be an organ donor unless you specifically opted out. Therefore, they would then have the right to, uh, after you were dead, uh, hopefully, but that's also a question these days, uh, to harvest your organs. In the United States, we have what's called an opt-in system. Uh, For example, on my driver's license currently, I have a dot on my license that says that if I'm dead, and I mean like the wicked witch of the West, really, really dead, dead, um, that I want to be an organ donor. That's an opt-in system. Uh, If you end up with an uh, presumed consent opt-out, it would say the the only what you'd have to have on your driver's license would be a dot saying, I'm not an organ donor. This is a small piece of a much bigger issue. What has happened is that the the organ donor and the organ uh, patient lines have grown. Why have they grown? A couple of reasons. Number one, 
It's an unintended consequence of the increased safety that things like helmet laws and airbags and things have done. There are fewer traumatic head injuries than there used to be because we have a greater uh, safety system in place that that prevent uh, bicycle helmets, this kind of thing. Secondly, organ transplant medicine, which has provided tremendous benefit for people, has improved so that there are now actually more conditions and more circumstances under which people could benefit from organ donation. So the lines have grown. The problem is that people look at these growing lines, and some of them, particularly in secular bioethics, are beginning to say, well, look at all those people that uh, that are waiting for organs, and yet you've got people like Terry Shiva, we'll say. Uh, who may be cognitively profoundly disabled. And uh, and some are actually beginning to say, not using her by name, but I'm using her as an example everybody recalls. Well, gee, the person in line who could go out and play football after getting the liver needs that liver more than Terry Schiavo. And so there is an urgency now in many of the professional journals, for example, for things like presumed consent, which we don't have in this country, for permission to kill cognitively disabled people for their organs, what they call redefining death, uh, to include a diagnosis, we'll say, of persistent unconsciousness, this kind of thing. That's also not yet happening. But the reason, Craig, that I write so much about these issues, the reason I try to push them up into the public's focus is because if we cast a light on these proposals, which people, I believe, will reject, they will never happen. But if we allow this advocacy to continue as it is in many of the world's most notable professional medical and bioethical journals, and if we allow uh, the, these advocates who you know have good intentions in the sense of trying to save lives, but they're going to do so at the expense, perhaps, of turning some people into mere natural resources, which we can never permit because that creates a, a duopoly, if you will, of human worth, uh, if we do not present, keep showing this, then we might end up with this kind of thing being slipped through. So it is becoming, Wes, then a, a major ethical trade-off. And as you point out, we're living safer, we're living longer, we have greater medical technology that the ability to harvest and transplant organs and have them take and allow that individual who's in need of said organ to, to go on and live a productive life. All of this is changing. I guess what not what is not keeping up with these tremendous changes is the whole ethical question and the whole ethical awareness. What what shocks me, you've made some references to Great Britain, and we'll talk more about this in depth as our conversation develops today. But it's surprisingly in that if we talked about our nearest relatives, we might look at our forefathers in Great Britain and say, we with them, morally and ethically, have the most in common. And yet here they apparently are on this fast track toward the so-called uh, implied content, uh, consent that really isn't consent at all. Yes, the uh, British Medical Association is pushing this. I believe Wales is about to actually implement it. Uh, you also have in, in the U.K., uh, uh, healthcare rationing because they have a socialized medical system and they have uh, 
the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence called NICE, which is uh, not so nice. Uh, and in fact, I, I haven't read the novels, but I understand that C.S. Lewis actually kind of had a prophetic uh, bad guy agency called NICE in some of his novels. But uh, NICE uh, is a healthcare rationer. And you have cost-benefit analysis in the United Kingdom as to who should and should not receive uh, healthcare or certain treatments. Let me give you an It's called the Quality Adjusted Life Year. And it gets very complicated, but I can explain it in a simplified nutshell. I mean, it's more complicated than what I'm going to say, but this is the rough idea. Let's say you and I have the same circumstance. And uh, there's a treatment that will give each of us five years of life with this treatment. Let's say that you will have five years of life able-bodied and vigorous. But for me, because of other circumstances, my five years of life will be bedridden. Under the quality adjusted life year, your treatment would be worth five years and mine might be worth two years because I have a lower, quote, quality of life because I'm bedridden, which is obviously an invidious judgment. Then you take the cost of that care. And they might say, well, gee, the call, let's say it's $100,000. Again, I'm just throwing out figures. It's worth a five-year, $100,000 for Craig to have five years of quality-adjusted life years. But we don't think it's worth Wesley being paid his treatment $100,000 for two quality-adjusted life years. Therefore, under that hypothetical illustration, you would get the treatment and I would be denied the treatment. Suddenly makes the insurance company... Um charts and tables, the actuary tables look pretty pretty evil and insidious. Now, consider Obamacare and the, the Affordable Care Act. There will be, if the law remains in effect after 2012, cost-benefit boards established. There's something called the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is a super bureaucracy in terms of cutting health care costs for Medicare. The New England Journal of Medicine has proposed that we in the United States, adopt the quality-adjusted life year. We don't have it yet, but it has been proposed. We do have some formal health care rationing in the United States. Oregon is a classic example. Oregon rations health care on Medicaid. It says, uh, let's say there's 750 various procedures and treatments and maladies to be that are on a list. And they will cover uh, the first so many depending on their budget. So let's say it's 650. If you are 650 or less, Medicaid will pay for that treatment. If you are 651 or more, it won't. And so that number adjusts. But, it, but for example, in 2008, a woman named Barbara Wagner had recurrent lung cancer. She was terminally ill, and the doctor prescribed for her uh, that she receive chemotherapy, not to save her life, but to extend it nine months a year. And that's all legitimate, obviously, part of cancer treatment. It's efficacious. It, it adds life uh, if people want that. The state of Oregon wrote her a letter saying, no, we will not pay for your chemotherapy because it is not likely to extend your life five years. But guess what? Assisted suicide is legal. We will pay for that. They wrote her that letter. And there was another fellow named Randy Stroops who had recurrent prostate cancer, similar circumstance. They wrote him a similar letter. That's what can happen when you lose the concept of the sanctity and intrinsic equality and dignity of human life in healthcare. So we've made then suddenly, Wesley, this shift from ethics and morals and values and the family making those kinds of decisions and ultimately the individual to suddenly now turning this over to a committee 
This is a bean counter who looks at this and says, based on the actuary tables, quality of life, our budget, and what we think your life is worth, we either will or will not provide these particular uh, medical procedures. And that's the real danger here. And with uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the entire, as we've seen in the recent uh, birth control controversy, the entire focus of what will be covered and what will not be covered has been centralized into the federal bureaucracy. That bill was 2,000 pages long, approximately. It will generate over 100,000 pages of regulations of the kind that we just saw with regard to trying to force Catholic organizations uh, to pay for birth control. Of course, that was never a... a, uh, an issue that was anything other than the free exercise of religion. So suddenly now we have a bureaucrat back in Washington, D.C., who's deciding whether or not your father's life is of any value. Let's pause on that point. If you've just joined us, our conversation today with Wesley Smith, senior fellow with the Discovery Institute, is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. We're talking about a very troubling emergence of a shift in bioethics that, that largely is taking place in Great Britain today, but it seems to be communicating sort of a preview of coming attractions here in America. Many of these critical questions that most importantly, we as the church need to be on the leading edge of, not following behind. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation, get a better sense of what this presumed consent means and how soon before it shows up here in America. I'm Craig Roberts. This edition of Lifeline continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, we're joined today in studio by Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute, a number of best-selling books, including Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. You can read Wesley's Musings and Secondhand Smoke, available online. Details to at WesleyJSmith.com. Wes, before the break, we were talking about some of the emergence of, of a new paradigm that's taking place in the medical profession. Uh, this this idea that they are now using actuary tables and committees and bureaucrats that are making life decisions that heretofore were basically allowed to be a very private, personal matter between the individual whose life we're discussing here and the family. Now, all of a sudden, a nameless, faceless bureaucrat thousands of miles away is making decisions based on a couple of facts, no more than that, most of it based on how likely do I think you'll continue to live, how productive of a life will you lead, sometimes maybe even including how much of a taxpayer will you continue to be, and then whether or not we're willing to pay the freight on your behalf. And it's troubling that we're even down to making these kinds of decisions. It almost seems as if the Hippocratic Oath has become a hypocritical one. (laughs) Hey, nice line. Um, Doctors don't take the Hippocratic Oath anymore. Uh, It's very sad, but it's true. Uh, What medical schools have done is watered it completely down. So it's basically pablum. For example, uh, they did away with the prohibition in the Hippocratic Oath on abortion. They did away with the prohibition in the Hippocratic Oath on assisted suicide, which is very clear. And realize, people say, well, that's forcing Christianity on people. Hippocrates was about 500 years before Christ. So there was an understanding, even in ancient Greece, that the very unique place of the doctor requires the doctor. And and what's so remarkable about the Hippocratic Oath is that the doctor is to give the same kind of optimal care, not only to the master, but also to the slave. 
Now think about that in ancient Greece where slaves, you know, were ubiquitous and that really, uh, you know, that they were, you could do basically almost anything with a slave. And yet under Hippocratic School of Medicine, the slave was to receive the same level of, of treatment from the doctor as the master. So now we've gone from do no harm to suddenly there's do no harm semicolon with some kind of qualifier to follow. Well, well and think about how uh, in the last, in my lifetime, I'm 62. In my lifetime, when I was a young man, for a doctor to commit an abortion or to, to participate in assisted suicide would not have only been a crime, but would have been considered profoundly unethical uh, by the medical professions. Today, in Victoria, Australia, if you're a doctor and a patient approaches you and says, I want an abortion, and you have a, met- a moral or religious objection to abortion, you can't just say, I'm sorry, I don't do that. You must go out and find a doctor. You must procure the doctor uh, to do that for you. In other words, no medical conscience. In the Netherlands, the Dutch Medical Association, where euthanasia is legal, the Dutch Medical Association has now passed ethical rules saying that if a patient approaches a doctor and is legally qualified to be killed medically, euthanasia, and the doctor has a moral objection, that doctor can't just say, no, I won't kill you. That doctor must find a doctor who will kill you. And by the way, in the Netherlands, that same ethical uh, document, which you can find if you do a, research, a search on my blog, Secondhand Smoke, the Dutch Medical Association told doctors it was perfectly acceptable if a patient came in who wanted to be killed and was not qualified for euthanasia under the law to send them to how to commit suicide sites. Think about that. In Switzerland, they have suicide clinics where people fly to from all around the world. It's called in the vernacular suicide tourism, where for a price, people can be made dead through assisted suicide. In Switzerland, because they've given up on the intrinsic dignity of human life, intrinsic Dignity has been accorded in the Constitution to plants, to individual plants. And so a I'm not kidding. You're giving me this look. I'm sorry. I wish I were making this up. I'm not making this up. I wish I were writing a, a novel. It's not a novel. They had a, the, the Swiss government appointed a bioethics commission to determine what is it about plants that give them intrinsic dignity. And it, it kind of came back to an old joke I've, I've often told uh, when I've been in debates with people who say, like neo-Darwinists, who say, well, you know, species distinctions are all a fiction. We all evolved out of the same primordial ooze. We all have uh, shared genes and so forth. And I, I would always say, well, gee, if you really want to get reductionist, Carrots are made of carbon molecules, and so are human beings, so there's no difference between us and carrots. That was my joke. Guess what the basis of intrinsic plant dignity is in Switzerland? That we share molecular substances. So my joke, which I thought was wild, you can't get ahead of them, Craig. It's suddenly science. Is now, and it's now the public policy of Switzerland. Meanwhile, last point. While you have suicide clinics in Switzerland, it's against the law to flush a live goldfish down the toilet. This is what comes when you deny human exceptionalism, when you reject the intrinsic dignity, the sanctity of human life. You start eating your own tail, and I think you go a bit crazy. 
You make reference to Darwinian theory. My mind flashes, flashes back to the science of eugenics, which was widely endorsed by the medical community a century ago. The pseudoscience of eugenics. Pseudoscience, thank you. Um, certainly a lot of this based on junk science, to be sure, a good dose of racism. Uh, we <laughs> yeah. saw a, a tremendous stamp of approval on the work of Margaret Sanger and her efforts in and the arena. And it was a progressive agenda, not a conservative. Very much so. And, and, and we saw the endorsement of Sanger's work by none less than Adolf Hitler himself. We can draw our own conclusions from that. What is the difference between that branch of pseudoscience a hundred years ago and what we're seeing today with so-called uh, presumed consent in England? Well, one had to do with supposed scientific distinctions between human beings. But what it really got down to was an ethical issue. Eugenics rejected the intrinsic sanctity of human life. It created invidious distinctions between the so-called fit and the so-called unfit. And does not this also do the same thing? We are in a era of new eugenics in which we are beginning to create different classifications of human life in terms of quality of life judgmentalism. Now, the old eugenics preached its poison with hate. The new eugenics preach, preaches its poison with compassion. But if you get past the justifications, you're beginning to see some of the same old discrimination uh, moving forward. Now, not based on morals as much, but based on quality of life, capacities, and things of this sort. Isn't a lot of this, West though, just manipulation of, of terminology here? I mean, we, for example, 10 years ago, we were talking about global warming. Today, it's climate change. Uh, what years ago used to be considered to be suicide and, and the, the wrongful taking of life today is considered compassionate medicine. Well, yeah, and and that's how, uh, as we saw from the uh, novel 1984, Newspeak, love is hate, right? Mm -hmm. And you end up, uh, you can if you you can manipulate the uh, lexicon. Uh, you can win the debate because he who controls the definitions tends to win the debate. The uh, presumed consent issue, for example, has been debated for many years in the UK. And on my blog today, I pointed out that the, the British Medical Association has now said because they've not been able to win that debate using the term presumed consent, they now say we should call it a soft opt out. So they're changing the terminology again to try to win the debate. Assisted suicide. You see this all the time. The term assisted suicide actually began, in fact, you go back to euthanasia. Euthanasia used to mean good and death in terms of dying a natural death in a state of grace, peaceful and surrounded by your family. Then the people who wanted to allow killing back in the 1890s grabbed that term and said, no, it's mercy killing, euthanasia. They changed the terminology. So people started saying, okay, we'll call it euthanasia. And then when they couldn't win based on that terminology, they've now changed it to aid in dying. Oh, yeah. Well, look at the whole debate up in the state of Oregon over That's this right. issue. Or death with dignity. Exactly. It's suddenly yeah. more from euthanasia to death with dignity. And who wouldn't want to allow an individual to have dignity as they're coming to the end of their life? Of course. So, so even when they change the lexicon and don't win the debate, they then change the lexicon again. And what drives me a little bit crazy is that as soon as, for example, the aid in dying words term, 
That's been pushed by compassion and choices. The idea behind that is, well, if somebody is terminally ill and they want to commit suicide, it's not really suicide because they're terminally ill. And if they weren't terminally ill, they wouldn't want to commit suicide. And so we can't call it suicide because people may think ill of the person who commits suicide. So now we must call it aid in dying. Almost as soon as they pushed that approach and sent out the press releases, you began seeing in the media aid in dying instead of assisted suicide. Our media jump through the hoops of various advocacy groups and as soon as a lexicon is to be changed, it gets changed. Global warming, as you said, climate change. Assisted suicide, aid in dying. Presumed consent, now soft opt-out. I mean, various things we could go through again and again. And the moral and ethical hoops through which we have to jump to accomplish all of this is unbelievable. I want to pause on that point. If you've just tuned in, Wesley Smith is with us tonight in studio, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. You get a number of best-selling books out there. We've talked about one today, Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. You can order that through Amazon.com. More information, too, as well as information on his blog online at WesleyJSmith.com. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about where the church stands on this forefront of the battle for bioethics. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues.